This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Juan Berenguer of the Minnesota Twins, number 526. Juan Berenguer, I am uh, pulling him up here on the Jumbotron and looking in the Beckett from 1988. It was a common card and common value. Why are we choosing Juan Berenguer this week, David? Matt, after we talked about Matt Noakes, you sent me a link to a video. Indeed, I did. <laughs> and that video is called The Berenguer Boogie. <laughs> Yes, that is true. I I don't know. I've started to learn your ways, David, and all of a sudden I'm on Wikipedia and then I've clicked a link and then I've started searching something else. And I believe that it was from Matt Noakes' YouTube page or his website, The Berenguer Boogie, but I ended up here and it'll be the first link in the show notes. And this is an extensive video behind the scenes and making of of a video about Juan Berenguer in the style of the Super Bowl shuffle, let's say, of a an 80s team making a great video, fun team video. Sort of a sort of a fun team video because it's Juan Berenguer. He it's <laughs> it is it's just him. It's just, it's just him and Tony Oliva, who was retired. I watched this 10-minute video and decided that we we needed to get, get down to business and talk about Juan Berenguer. Excellent. Well, so to let folks know at home, here's kind of the layout of the show today. We will we'll go over the card itself and a little of Juan Berenguer's early career. We also have are excited to have an RBI baseball scouting report from Brian. And then we'll go into the Berenguer Boogie video itself. And also, it looks like, David, I see some in-depth notes about other 80s-era sports videos. So hopefully we can kind of dig into that as well. That sounds good. Yeah, Juan had an interesting career, an interesting background uh, after looking into it. Part of a couple World Series winning teams and a, a really interesting player in this 1988 top set. So starting with the front of this card, you have Juan Berenguer, and it looks like he's throwing a split-finger fastball here. Yes, it does look that way, because you can see his thumb and first finger almost making a circle, but he's uh, in mid-delivery, looking very focused at home plate. And going to the back of the card, Juan was 5'11", 215, so he was a big guy, born in Agua Dulce, Panama. Signed by the Mets in 1975 and the first stats on here are from 1978 so i'm guessing in the minors before that yeah he he played in the mets minor league system from 1975 to 78 there's an interesting story about his signing with the mets he played third base until he's 16 years old and his brother convinced him that he had a strong arm so he should switch to playing pitcher and that would make him a more valuable player so at 18, he makes the Panamanian national team. 
and he's traveling around the Central America, playing in some games against other national teams, playing some games in Cuba. He meets Louis Tiant, Red Sox legend, and Tony Oliva, who played for the Minnesota Twins. And they told him, keep it up. We'll see you in the, in the U.S. soon enough. So that's 18-year-old Juan. Three years later, at 21, he's playing in Panama, and a Mets scout saw him at a game and is impressed, shows up at his house the next day at 6 in the morning, and <laughs> Mrs. Berenguer is like, get out of here. Juan's sleeping. My son is sleeping. Please leave. And tries to turn the guy away. Luckily for Juan and for our show here, Juan's brother intervened and said like, no, 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 this is important. Went and woke Juan up. Within 12 hours, he had signed a professional contract with the Mets and was on his way to St. Petersburg, Florida to play in spring training. That's amazing. That's a good brother. Yes. And, you know, I don't know if this kind of thing still happens, but that's normally now you have guys who, by the time they're 21, they've already been found. You don't have a guy making it that far without without getting discovered. So as you said, Juan plays in the minor leagues for the Mets and seemed like every year would get a late season call up and had some pretty rough seasons for the Mets there. His first year had an ERA above eight and, you know, pitched in five or six games for a couple seasons there. So he gets traded to the Royals in 81. And Matt, you'll see here this italicized number in 1981. He was a league leader in 1981. So big year for Juan. Unfortunately, mm. he led the league in losses. Oh no. Oh no. And he played for two different teams. So he was in 1981 traded to the Royals. He goes 0 and 4 with the Royals with an 8.55 ERA. He was not having a good year. And then in mid-season the Blue Jays just bought him. He went 2 and 9 and finished out a rough year at 2 and 13 leading the American League in losses. That leads into 1982, a real turning point for Juan. He gets released by the Blue Jays and gets a call from the Detroit Tigers. He signs as a free agent, spends a year in AAA baseball for the Tigers, and then in 1983 makes the team. He reaches a turning point in 83 because Roger Craig was the pitching coach for the Tigers. Roger Craig has showed up on this show before as the manager of the San Francisco Giants getting into a fight with Whitey Herzog. <laughs> he also was known as a split-finger pitching guru. And according to Juan Berenger, Roger Craig and Sparky Anderson saved his career. Roger Craig taught him how to throw a split-finger fastball, and Juan said he learned it in about a week. This was kind of a modification of a forkball. So the, the pitcher places their fingers on either side of the seams of the ball, and a forkball has much a much larger split between the fingers. So Juan learns this, learns how to throw the split finger pitch. And if you look at the back of this card by 1983, the results were showing. Yeah, so in 1983, that ERA had come down to 314 as opposed to 855 during that stint with the Royals. So huge improvement and there. And he's starting some games in and kind of a middle relief pitcher. He throws 150 innings in 1983 and continues to kind of establish himself in the major leagues as a guy with a really great fastball. 
according to Wade Boggs, he had the fastest fastball Wade Boggs had ever seen that Juan could throw a 101.5 mile an hour fastball, adding to to his repertoire a split finger pitch in 83. That takes us up to 1984 for the first of his two World Series rings. Tell us a little about the 1984 season for him. We've had our, our friend Brian on before to talk about the 1987 Tigers, and he talked a little bit about the 84 Tigers. I don't think he got into Juan Berenguer when talking about the 84 Tigers because he was the third or fourth starter. Unfortunately, he was never needed in the 1984 ALCS. Their starters took care of most of the innings, then they brought in the closers at the end of the game. And the same thing goes for the World Series. So Juan, even though he started 27 games throughout the season, didn't pitch a single inning of the 1984 playoffs or World Series. Coming out of that 84 season, Berenguer has a disappointing 1985 season and he was traded. And this is something that we talked about in the Matt Noakes episode. Juan Berenguer was traded with Bob Melvin to the Giants. And he was traded in exchange for Matt Noakes, Eric King, and Dave LaPointe. So we know that this trade worked out okay for Matt Noakes, who goes on to have a very good rookie season for the Tigers. But what about for Juan Berenguer? He's traded to the Giants, and he starts the 1986 season as a starter, which did not go well for Juan. He had a 6.0 ERA as a starter, and then he gets moved to the bullpen. By the end of the season, he had lowered that ERA to 2.7, and that really sets up his the next stage of his career as a relief pitcher. During the 86 season, the Giants had a lot of relief pitchers, and they asked him where he wanted to be traded. Juan said that Tony Oliva, his old friend from that he met in Cuba, said that the Twins were interested in him. And so he said he wanted to go to the Twins, but the Giants didn't really want any of the Twins players. So a trade never went through in 86, and he's released at the end of the season. He gets signed as a free agent by the Minnesota Twins and is originally signed to be their closer. The Twins then traded for Jeff Reardon, who was an established closer, also had a great beard. And after they pick up Jeff Reardon, Tony Oliva again comes in and says, Juan... You're going to be okay. We don't have a ton of starting pitching, so we're going to need to have some guys to eat up relief innings. And Matt, I think that this brings us up to the 87 season and brings us up to our RBI baseball scouting report. Absolutely. Especially with that mention of Jeff Reardon, Jeff Reardon and Juan Berenguer being two of the pitchers on the RBI baseball team. Let's kick it over to Brian for that report. Brian, give us the lowdown on El Gasolino. El Gasolino, Juan Berenguer. Well, he's part of the Minnesota Twins, as they're taken from the 1987 season. Just a little bit about the Twins team generally. They're an okay team in RBI baseball, not in the level of the Tigers, the Red Sox, or those all-star teams. Pretty good pitching, but not a lot of depth beyond the top bats. One of the fun things about playing with the Twins, though, and this goes for the Astros as well, is the lighting in RBI baseball is such that it always feels like a home game when you have those teams because it's kind of dark. It feels like you're actually in the Metrodome. I'm not sure that the stands face in the wrong direction like they did in the actual Metrodome where you're staring at center field when you're up the baselines, but the RBI baseball stadium kind of feels like it could be in Minnesota. 
Juan Berenguer is one of four pitchers for the Twins. Juan Berenguer's claim to fame in RBI baseball is he is the single hardest thrower across the 10 teams and thus 40 pitchers. No one throws a faster fastball than Juan Berenguer. This does match up with his attributes in real life. The flip side of this is he's actually tied for the lowest stamina in the game. His stamina rating is 12. What's interesting, I think, about Juan Berenguer and RBI baseball in particular is that all of the players in RBI baseball look the same. And you could look at this one of two ways. One is that they all have kind of a specific model build. Another is that they all look like Juan Berenguer. They're all kind of rotund. They're all a little squat looking. And that, of course, is how Juan Berenguer looks. They don't have any facial features, which is really unfortunate because we're missing out on one of the best parts of Juan Berenguer, which is that, that signature mustache that he sports. So, Brian, when you, when you say his low stamina, how many innings can you get out of Juan Berenguer in RBI baseball before you need to sub him out? Probably only one. When you throw fastballs, he only has about six fastballs before his velocity starts to, starts to dip. I learned from experience in playing RBI baseball the other day for the first time in many years and starting Juan Berenguer that he will not get you much beyond an inning. And in my <laughs> case, he didn't get even an inning. I was, <laughs> oh, no. I was blown out, I think, 7 to nothing by the second inning, and I decided I didn't want to play anymore. And one of the great things about Juan Berenguer and RBI, and this is true of a few different players, is the abbreviation of his name. This being Nintendo in uh, the late 80s, you didn't always have the, the real estate on the screen to show full player names. So they would shorten everything to only six characters. And it's B-R-N-G-E-R, kind of like Bringer. But I guess he was bringing El Gasolino to the, to the batters in that game. Wrap up Senior Smoke, Brian. Where would you rank him? as far as pitchers in RBI baseball overall, strategically as a reliever? Overall, he's probably in the bottom half of pitchers. And part of that is because you can hit a really good fastball that doesn't move all that well. The fastball is a bit of a one-trick pony, and it limits Juan Berenguer's effectiveness. Well, thank you so much for the report. We will see you later in the season. So, David, let's look at the 1987 season as captured on the 1988 card. The 87 Twins went 85 and 77. They won the American League West and made it into the playoffs. Juan went 8 and 1, largely in relief, but he also started six games. He had a 3.94 ERA. He struck out 110 guys in 112 innings, and he walked only 47. So this was the best strikeout-to-walk ratio of his career. The Twins go into the playoffs, and in the 1987 American League Championship Series, they face Juan Berenguer's old team, the Detroit Tigers, and his old coach, Sparky Anderson. The Tigers had the advantage. They had a really good team, as we talked about in the Matt Noakes episode. Juan had never pitched in the playoffs. This was a big deal for him against his old team, and he had a really good playoff series. He pitched in four of the five games against the Tigers and struck out six guys in six innings. He only gave up one run in those uh, four appearances. Probably Juan's most memorable moment of his career came in this American League Championship Series. Game two, 
in the eighth inning, the Twins are up 6-2, to two, and our old friend Burt Blylevin is pitching. The frying Dutchman Burt Blylevin <laughs> gave up a home run to Lou Whitaker and then a single to Daryl Evans. So now it's 6-3 to three with one out and a man on first base. The Twins coach Tom Kelly brings in Juan to get two outs. So he just wanted to get two outs, and then he was going to bring in the closer in the ninth inning. Juan faces Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson strikes out swinging. Alan Frammel grounds out to end the inning. And in the ninth inning, Juan's still in there. So they didn't bring in the closer. The leadoff batter in the ninth inning is Matt Noakes. So the trade, Berenger for Noakes. And now the matchup in, the, in game two of the ALCS, Matt Noakes strikes out swinging. Same goes for Chet Lemon and Pat Sheridan. And Juan gets a save in game two striking out four of the five batters that he faced. He also got underneath Sparky Anderson's skin in this game with this celebration that Juan would do. He would slap his glove, pull his one fist back, his throwing hand fist back, and thrust his glove out into the air, almost in like a Freddie Mercury stance, pumping his fist, slapping his glove. Sparky Anderson to the press says, don't ever try to embarrass my players. Whatever this is with the glove coming up and the hand coming down, don't wake the sleeping dog. So Sparky was mad at his old player, but it, it clearly was getting him pumped up and getting the team pumped up. And he continued to have a successful ALCS. He pitched another scoreless inning in Game 3, pitched two scoreless, hitless innings in Game 4, and uh, then he gave up a home run in Game 5, but the Twins still won the game and won the series in five games. They won in Detroit in the afternoon. They get on a plane from Detroit and fly to Minneapolis. And there is a, an amazing video. I watched way too much of this 35-minute video last night. They pull the bus into the Metrodome right up to these big garage doors. All the players get off the bus. They open the garage doors, and there's 55,000 people at the Metrodome. What? So after this game in Detroit, I, I don't know if they just announced it on the TV, just everybody get down to the Metrodome, but you have a packed Metrodome, everybody's got their Homer hankies, and the guys are just walking out of this garage door. Some of the guys are crying. It was, it was nuts. That's amazing. That is amazing. And there is an iconic image, Juan Berenguer. He shows up at the Metrodome, 55,000 fans cheering. He's wearing a trench coat. This wide-brimmed hat, sunglasses, and he's carrying a briefcase. So he shows up at the Metrodome, and he does his little celebration dance, punches his fist in the air, and the crowd is just going crazy. This was the first World Series that the Twins had made in 22 years. They had legitimate stars on this team. They had Kirby Puckett. They had Kent Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, Frank Viola, and... The guy they get to make the song is Juan Berenger. <laughs> and I think that it was because of that that moment with those 55,000 fans. And the one thing that you remember is this, like, guy in a trench coat doing a dance. Yeah, it is not the Super Bowl shuffle. There's not a shuffling crew here. Yeah, so in the, in the Berenger boogie video, which, again, is... 10 minutes long, it does not need to be this long. It, it, it has 
couple minutes of introduction, then they finally get to the song, and then they have some behind-the-scenes making of the video, including a really awkward scene in the boardroom of some insurance company who's saying, we're giving $25,000 to this effort. You know, Do you think you can do it? And you've got this castle group leading a creative process. It's, there's a legal pad. There's some scribbling. There's some acapella kind of work going on. They're doing some clever wordplay. So they're drinking a ton of Diet Pepsi in this boardroom. Matt, would you believe that this song and video were completed in 48 hours? Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely, I would. Yeah, they it. in this making of it. video, they're writing and recording all night. It made me very uncomfortable to see four people around one microphone. The sound quality is not great. The song is terrible. There's a guy named Matt Blair, who was a, a Vikings linebacker, had no connection to the 1987 Twins. Um, he's blowing a whistle, much like in the Super Bowl shuffle. There's no whistles in baseball, but from what I could gather, the wives of the players had whistles in the stadium. So Tom Brunanski's wife was asked at this Metrodome celebration, are you guys going to have your whistles? And she said, all the wives are going to have their whistles. So maybe the whistle is a reference to that. There's a lot of background dancers wearing a lot of sparkles. And they were called the Beringer Babes. I do like the hook of the Beringer Boogie, El Gasolino. I like that. I like that. Yeah, melody. they had that. I like that. Melody. And then they built a song around it. That's not very good. <laughs> it's not enough. It's not enough to make a great song. This was a Paisley Park production. Paisley Park, the recording studio started by Prince and full of musicians writing songs for Prince. You know, th there's some connections to one of the greatest artists of all time in this Berenguer boogie. Maybe this, I don't know if this is the greatest song recorded at Paisley Park. <laughs> Tevin Campbell's Round and Round was recorded there too. I would go, that, that's, a, that's a good jam. This song, maybe not quite as good as Round and Round. We're going to put, we'll put a link to uh, Round and Round on, <laughs> okay. from, on Spotify <laughs> in the show notes because that's Because if you have a chance song. to post a Tevin Campbell song, why wouldn't you? So the yeah. music for this was written by the Castle family. I don't know what the Castle mm -hmm. family is, but they there is a really good album cover called Love That Showbiz by the Castle family. And they are all wearing a lot of sparkles. It's great. Mm. Matt, how does this compare for you to other 80s sports team music videos? So last night, it just so happened that I was home watching the making of the We Are the World video. <laughs> this is a rip of the DVD from 1985, hosted by Jane Fonda about the worldwide bestseller we are the world written by quincy jones with lionel richie michael jackson dan Aykroyd. Dan i mean everybody everybody and the whole and the movie is amazing stevie wonder ray charles like it's it's absolutely incredible 
you know, the the writing on the fly. They recorded that in 24 hours. They edited in in several more days, and they're doing reel to reel, and then did this making up video afterwards. And so I would say, first of all, like in the kind of pantheon of collaboration videos, the Baron Garrett Boogie doesn't come to that level. For other sports ones, the Super Bowl shuffle was really the only one, it was really the groundbreaker. But I think this does all come back to we are the world. I think we are the world is the actual genesis. I think that's why the Super Bowl shuffle came. It was like, hey, if we get everyone in a room together and we can share the lines. But the issue is there's only one Quincy Jones. There's also only one Ray Charles. And so... The, the the castle group was kind of doomed <laughs> if you compare it in those terms. Yeah, I will admit that I think the first two records that I owned were We Are the World and the Super Bowl Shuffle. And I think that I got <laughs> them for my birthday or maybe for Christmas in 1985. So I have fond memory of both of those. There's some other really ridiculous songs like Ram It from the L.A. Rams. Mm which has Jackie Slater rapping and a lot of just <laughs> a lot of use of the words ram it. It's not, <laughs> it's not great. And That's not great. At a all. particular favorite of mine is the Anfield rap, which is the, of course, Liverpool football club, my beloved Liverpool football club. And that one had samples of the Beatles. It had them singing. You'll never walk alone or rapping. You'll never walk alone. And it had Bruce Grubelar, who was the South African goalkeeper for the 1980s Liverpool Football Club, wearing a Baltimore Orioles hat for some reason. I don't know. He mm. thought that that was a good rap look. But yeah, I love the Anfield rap. One final one we have, yeah, was Metzmerized, which I don't know how I missed this in talking about Lenny Dykstra, but we're going to come back to Metzmerized at some point with, with one of our 88 tops Mets players. If you want to hear Tim, Tim no. Tufel rap. I <laughs> do not. My favorite note from looking for things about the Berenger Boogie, I found a blog post where somebody just said, remember Jody's friend Julie from college? We went to her wedding and for some odd reason, Juan Berenger was in attendance. So... <laughs> <laughs> So if you're in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and you go to a wedding, Juan Berenger might be there. Juan's kind of shining moment was in that ALCS. And in the World Series, his statistics in that World Series are not great. 0-1 with a 10.38 ERA in three games. He had a rough start. He gave up two runs in an inning in game two. And then he took the loss after allowing three runs in one-third of an inning in Game 3. So a rough first couple games, but Game 6, he was given a tip. He was relying too much on his fastball. In Game 6, he threw more sliders and split-finger pitches and pitched three innings scoreless, and the Twins won 11-5. So that took the series to 3-3. And then in Game 7, they didn't need one. Frank Viola pitched eight innings, and then Jeff Reardon closed it out, and they won the World Series. So I, I don't think that they would have said, let's do a Juan Berenger song after he has a rough World Series. But 
that maybe doesn't tell the whole story of Juan's 87 World Series. He was the first Panamanian pitcher in the World Series and the eighth Panamanian to play in a World Series. Okay, so after that 87 World Series, let's wrap up his career and where is he now? Juan pitched for the Twins through 1990 and ended his Twins career with a record of 33 and 13 in four years. Pretty good. And he became a free agent after the 1990 season and signed a relatively big contract with the Atlanta Braves. And in 1991, he became the Braves' closer. He was pitching really well in 1991. In July and August, he had 15 appearances, four saves, and a 1.89 ERA with 20 strikeouts in 19 innings. So at that point in 1991, he's at 17 saves, which is more than he'd ever had in, in the entirety of his career prior to 1991, and had a 2.24 ERA. So really really good year in 1991. He's home on an off day wrestling with his kids and he broke his arm. Oh no. He broke his pitching arm and ended up missing the rest of the season. The Braves had a great run closing the season and they won the pennant and went to the World Series against Juan's old team, the Minnesota Twins. And unfortunately, the Braves lost in seven games that year, and Juan was unable to pitch due to his broken arm. Pretty sad, because that also kind of turns out to be his best season, statistically, as a closer. But also, he was 36 years old at the time. He was traded after a slow start, and that was his last year in the majors. He ended up having a, a short career in the independent leagues with a couple of Minneapolis teams, the Minneapolis Loons and the Southern Mini Stars. And there's a few articles. He's recently been involved with some car dealerships, so selling cars. And if you bought a car, he would give you a picture of him from the 87 World Series. (laughs) He was with the Lincoln dealership and a Ford dealership. Also some good articles saying, you know, Beringer makes a new pitch. One said, Senior Smoke has become Senior Sales. Ugh. Ugh. So many bad puns. But... Yeah, but but Juan is you know still booging around Minneapolis St. Paul, still active in the area. He had a couple sons who played sports. One played hockey, college hockey, and another played college baseball. When he finished his career, he held some records for Panamanian-born pitchers, including most wins and innings and strikeouts for a Panamanian pitcher. Mariano Rivera has since broken those records, and Bruce Chen as well have, have have taken those spots. And that's fine, but I've never seen them boogie. Indeed. Thank you, David. Thank you to Brian for the scouting report. If you have any comments, if you have suggestions on a card, if you have suggestions on a 1980s sports video that you'd like us to watch, you can reach us at tops1988 on twitter or 1988topspodcast at gmail.com thanks to all of you at home for listening and we'll see you next week